0: The CNBC app: global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in
1: your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
0: Good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines: HSBC delivers a better-than-expected 31% jump in first quarter profit, helped by cost cutting and income growth in its Asian business. SocGen's first quarter net profit drops, but still beats expectations as the French lender boosts its capital buffers.
2: The very good news is on the capital ratio. It's a question mark for investors, but there is a strong increase of RQT1 by more than 50 uh, basis points. It's a mix of uh, strong discipline of risk rated assets, the benefits of some disposal which have been closed, and of course the results.
3: Elsewhere declines continue for a second day on Wall Street as investors dial down expectations for a rate cut. Energy leads the losses as oil prices sink to a one-month low. And Stephen Moore withdraws his candidacy for a seat on the Fed's board, the second of President Trump's picks to rule themselves out of contention amid political pressure.
4: Plus, at this hour, Warren Buffett tells CNBC that Berkshire Hathaway has been buying Amazon shares. Tesla pleases investors by laying out plans to raise up to $2.3 billion in new capital. And leaders of the European Parliament's four biggest blocs face off in a debate ahead of this month's elections.
0: Good morning. A lot of results coming out in Europe this morning, but let's kick off with uh, Sock Gen then. We already gave you the headline. The first quarter net number is down 26% on the year, 631 million euros. Um, that's a little light of the expectation. Not far off the run rate expected, though. Sock Gen Q1 revenue down 1.6% on the year to 6.19 billion Uh, the analysts uh, were looking for a little less than that. So they've beat on the revenue just off the pace on the net. The common equity tier one ratio in at 11.7%, up from 11.2% at the end of the fourth quarter. Um, The group says uh, they've reduced risk-weighted assets by 2.3 billion euros in the first quarter. Corporate and investment banking unit arm net income negative 16% at 140 million euros. Might be a good point to catch up uh, with Juliana on in Paris this morning. I thought we saw from BNP that they had seen an improvement in those lines that were sensitive to the pickup in market activity and volatility in the first quarter, this seems to be a slightly different story, Juliana from Sockgen.
5: Jeff, you're absolutely right. BMP yesterday surprised the market with a better-than-expected FIC print. Now, Sockgen has come out and their FIC business revenue-wise dropped 16% year-on-year. So, continued weakness there. Equities was also weak, down 5%. Remember, not long ago uh, in February, excuse me, in January, Sockgen provided a profit warning to markets on the back of weak trading at the end of Q4. So that weakness still came through in Q1 for Sockgen. The key point here in today's results for investors is going to be that capital number that you mentioned. They managed to raise their core tier one capital ratio from 11.2% at the end of 2018 to 11.7% now. This has been a big sticking point for investors. Uh, So the fact that they've made progress on this is likely to be received well. Now, I had a chance to catch up with the CEO of Sockgen, Frederick Udine for more detail on these results. Let's
2: take a listen in. I'm happy with the beginning of the year. I must say the, the, the very good news is on the capital ratio. And uh, we are showing that, uh, yes, we can definitely uh, address this issue. It's a question mark for investors. But there is a strong increase of our 41 one by more than 50 uh, basis points. It's a mix of uh, strong discipline of risk rated assets, the benefit of some disposal, which have been closed, and, of course, the results. So that's uh, very positive. Beyond, I would say uh, something pretty, uh, pretty uh, good and resilient in the capital markets. Uh, knowing that in Europe, you know, there was a lot of wait-and-see modes, limited volumes. All in all, for our wholesale banking activities, stable revenues. Uh, financing up, uh, capital markets uh, slightly down, but it's okay. Very strong performance of our international retail financial services, which confirm its capacity of to grow. Uh, the NBI, positive jobs, improvement of uh, net profit, improvement of profitability. And I would say a resilient performance of the French retail, uh, good commercial performances, Decrease of revenues, but the stabilization of the net interest margin versus the end of 2018. So it's probably the inflection point. Let me just remind you that we still expect a slight erosion of revenues this year in French retail, between 0 and minus 1%, and then go back to growth uh, next year. I think it is confirmed in the results. And then, of course, across the board, low cost of risk, which again should give a lot of comfort also to our shareholders. So... Uh, in an environment which is not so great for, for Europe uh, Eurozone, uh, something which I think is uh, pretty
5: positive. Let's dive into those trading revenues, which were hit very hard at the end of last year. It looks like another tough quarter, though, for fixed income and equities, uh, with fix, FIC down 16 percent, equities down 5 percent. What specifically drove the weakness this quarter? I'm thinking about the fact that one of your uh, close peers reported a surprisingly strong result in FIC this quarter.
2: We've seen contrasted results, Uh, some doing better than us in fixed, some doing also much worse than us in equity, so it depends. And I would say the difference with the fourth quarter, it was not coming from the the trading uh, environment. There was no uh, big uh, movements. It's more uh, lower commercial activity. Again, investors after the fourth quarter in 2018 were very much in a a wait-and-see mode wondering where markets would go, uh, wondering on the economy, etc. So we saw less activity, for example, on structured products. If, uh, as we think, uh, people are a little bit more comfortable with the uh, economic outlook going forward and the major risk, these things should probably potentially vanish. But it was the beginning, which was lower on the commercial side.
5: So there was the CEO of SOCGen, Frederick Udaya, uh, providing a little bit more color around why trading revenues were down in, in Q1. And in line with what we've been hearing uh, in the studio and around uh, over the last weeks, there is a lack of conviction in the market, and that's led to lower client activity, and that's been impacting their FIC and equities businesses. And I want to also highlight some uh, update on their 2020 targets. They have reiterated the actual targets, but importantly today, they have provided a roadmap for investors outlining precisely how they're going to get there. And this is important because uh, investors have been cautious on SockGen stock because they think the execution risk is high, largely. So the fact that they have now outlined milestones and uh, precise details around when certain measures will come to fruition should give investors some confidence that they can deliver on their plan. So if I had to sum up, bottom line is they have come ahead of expectations on revenues, net income slightly uh, more broadly in line with consensus, but still lower year on year on both those metrics. So a weak trading environment still hitting them hard. But the key improvement today, the key focus for investors is likely going to be that big capital improvement, uh, their core tier one ratio up to 11.7 percent. Back to you guys in the studio.
4: Uh, Juliana, thank you very much for that. And I want to push on to another bank because you can see the difference in capital levels uh, from Socgen to HSBC. Now, it has posted better than expected 31% rise in first quarter net profit, citing cost cutting and higher income at its Asian unit. We're just talking about Socgen having a CT1 of 11.7%. HSBC, the level is at 14.3% this quarter, much firmer. Earlier this year, the bank warned it might have to delay some investments after its 2018 profit missed expectations amid slowing growth in its two home markets of China and Britain.
3: OK, let us move on and take a look at Equinor first quarter results. I know they changed their name over a year ago, but just to remind everyone, this is the old Statoil, OK? It's a Norwegian oil and gas company, uh, higher than expected operating profit in the first quarter. Good numbers. Giant uh, fielder Johan Sverdrup uh, in the North Sea set to remain on track to start production in November. That's enough of me. Let's get to Elda Setra, who is the CEO of Equinor and joins us now. Elda, always a pleasure speaking to you, my friend. Look, I've got a question for you. Your shares were trading 235 in September. They're trading 190 now. Do you need to offer more money back to shareholders via some form of buyback or increased dividend uh, in order to reignite the share story? Good morning.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, it was a pleasure being here this morning. I think it is a strong set of numbers. To your reflections on on uh, on the on the shares and share buyback, we are. Uh, we raised our dividend, uh, cash dividend, which is our priority, by 13% from fourth quarter. So we maintain that increase this, this quarter. That is our priority. And what's and, uh, our priority to strengthen our balance sheet? So I think we have a competitive cash dividend and, and, uh, and the share price is, you know, I guess responding to many, many factors.
3: Companies change their names. Uh, It's sometimes just something that's cosmetic. Other times it's a meaningful change in the direction of the company. And we know that Norway, Scandinavia, the world wants a meaningful change in the direction of hydrocarbons as well. Is that one reason why you don't want to spend more money giving back to shareholders and the fact that actually you've got to put more investment uh, into um, less carbon intensive activities going forward?
1: And we have a strong, a strong balance sheet, and, and this quarter, our balance sheet and, and debt ratio comes below 20%. And, and, and our priority is to strengthen that you know, even, even further. We have the capacity to grow our upstream uh, business, the oil and gas business, 3% volume growth until mid-20s. Uh, and we also have significant growth within the renewables business. So we can do that at the same time as we strengthen our balance sheet.
0: Um, Eldar, can I get a bit of guidance on the uh, costs per barrel going forward? Notable, I think, through this period, as you point out yourself in the earnings announcement, that you had a lot of uh, new fields coming on stream and that did lift costs per barrel and you had some underlying price weakness. Could you give us a bit of a forecast as to whether you think some of these increased cost pressures will wash out and what that might look like in coming quarters?
1: So so basically we, we said that the, you know per barrel the cost per barrel would be at the same level as we, we saw back in two thousand and seventeen and two thousand and twenty. In the meantime, there is some increases, and that is mainly due to the structure of new capacity coming in when we have new fields coming on stream, we, we expense the preparation for operations and it also takes time to build the capacity when we put them into, or put them on stream. So this is basically activity driven and uh, as we're heading towards uh, 2020, we will see more capacity come in, more volumes, and that will take down the uh, cost per barrel, and one of these fields is obviously the yuan Verde field, which is uh, you know pretty you know a, a, a nice piece of of, of uh, facility for us, and and will add quite significant production. And that okay. is, by the way, on time as as we have planned for.
0: Obviously, a lot depends on the trend in the headline energy price this year. Could you give us a, a sense of what you're seeing unfold and how you think the headline price may change? Well, we see a uh,
1: pretty. St- pretty stable when it comes to the demand side. You know, stay stable, picture, you know, 1.3, 1.4 million barrels a day in in increase. Uh, Then, obviously, we see in the uh, uncertainties when it comes to uh, U.S. sanctions on Iran, Uh, Venezuela recently, uh, additional uncertainties, Libya. So this will lead to a tighter balance. And then, on the other hand, you know, we have the OPEC making their sort of, you know, considerations by June uh, and we expect the market to be pretty balanced but uh, when you have a balanced physical market you should also expect volatility so, so that's what we expect you know more or less you know volatility around the current uh, levels as you're heading into 2019.
4: Elder it felt as though the increased geopolitics in the price of oil over the course of last year and this year may have changed the investment climate where many of the, the oil majors are now looking at putting more into exploration. You've tallied up your cost today, $268 million in the first quarter. Can you just give us a sense of how investors feel about higher exploration costs at this point in the cycle?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, the, the, uh, we have yeah, we've definitely seen uh, an increase in in, uh, in exploration costs. Uh, not significant, but some increase, and several players are raising their... Uh, exploration activity—we did that as well. So, so we increased our uh, guiding for this year to one, $1. 1.7 billion U.S. dollar. So, and, and we see some areas that it, which is pretty competitive and, and, and fierce competition when it comes to uh, exploration acreage. So, so that's that's what we observe and increased intensity on on, on the competition for, for high quality acreage.
4: Speaking of which, we have seen a lot of product coming out of the Permian and, and just out of the states now. U.S. crude production output has hit a, a fresh record over the course of this week. What sort of competitive threat are you seeing from the U.S. and what is that doing to prices, in your view?
1: You no, know, we, we 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 see the uh, the U.S. onshore the the unconventional continue to increase. Uh, going forward, you know, and at some point, uh, there will be a challenge to continue to grow and and, and raise that production. But for quite a few years, we see that coming into the market and into into play. And and to us, that is something that is, you know, important in order to balance the market. We continue to see a growth in the oil demand going forward, and and we need new volumes to to support that growth. and, And this comes into that balance sheet.
3: Elder, when I'm speaking to you or to Patrick or Bob or uh, Ben, any of the to leaders of the biggest uh, IOCs uh, in Europe, I think there's one prevalent, uh, clear existential threat at the moment, and that is investors, and that is people telling investors to ditch their holdings of hydrocarbon companies as well. You've already laid on the line your renewable credentials and what you're doing in that area as well. But are you concerned? Is it a clear and present danger to your existence that companies and institutions such as the government of Norway do not want to own hydrocarbons as much as they did perhaps even a couple of years ago?
1: No, I see uh, a lot of interaction and interest and financial interest into into the oil and gas sector, and it's a sector that will continue to... To, to, to grow, but I also see, you know, other money that was more attracted to, to, to the really low-carbon uh, investments. And, and to me, this is really, you know, uh, 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 a short-term issue and, and then a longer-term issue. And, and for us, it's important to take part in both, you know, these uh, these issues to address the carbon efficiency of the oil and gas that we produce, the uh, and, and then also to take part in the longer transition. And I think, you know, to have a good balance and have transparency towards our investors in what we are doing and how we look upon these risks and stress testing and so on of our portfolio compared to different scenarios, that is really important, that we have a good dialogue with our investors. And I feel that is, that is progressing well.
3: Look, I know you're a busy man. Thanks very much indeed for getting on the line and speaking to us this morning. Have a, a great weekend. Uh, Elra Cetra, who is the CEO of Equinor. And, of course, that pressure on the IOCs and on the hydrocarbon producers is exactly the same as the pressure on the airlines as well because people are being told, do not get on planes so much. It's part of the solution to keeping the climate down.
4: Yeah, and don't forget the movement in the oil price has a counteractive yes, uh, does, implication yeah. for the airline space. And I'll just go straight to the Q1 fuel bill at Air France KLM. Uh, that has risen. 140 million euros to 1.2 billion euros in the first three months of its fiscal year. So there has been an impact. Its Q1 operating loss has widened to 303 million euros from 185 million. Its Q1 unit revenue fell 1.9% as network capacity grew 2.3%. So again, we're still seeing competitive pressures as uh, more airlines uh, put an increased number of flights and routes out there. In terms of uh, the overall group revenue, that's risen 3.1%. So it's coming at 5.98 billion euros. I just want to uh, pull up the unit cost that is down 0.4% in line with its four-year goal. It sees forward long-haul bookings up 1% in May. Not very much, you've got to say, uh, 1% for May and June, flat for July. So on the uh, forward long-haul bookings where, of course, there are better profits to be derived, we're not seeing huge upside today. Um, just by way of background too, the company got a little bit interesting earlier in the year when we saw the Netherlands increase its stake in the company to just over 12.5%, closing the gap with the stake that the French government has, about 14%, because uh, the Netherlands wanted an increased say in the business. There, of course, have been issues in the past two with strikes, and uh, we had a number about 335 million euros. The cost of strike action was uh, presented to the market back in February. This is
3: bonkers. You can't make this stuff up. You've got the governments with their hands all over these national carriers when we don't need national carriers because we have a, a pretty much unified Europe, apparently, as well. You've got a situation where they never took out the serious costs 2004... Uh, what you read, 2004, the Air France-KLM merger. Yeah. Stefan Padrazzi was our reporter in Paris many moons ago. You and I at the time were saying, this is crazy. Where are the cost cuts? Where are the cost cuts? They haven't done that. And the operating margin figure, Karen, that means it's off the Richter scale. Negative 6.9% over at Air France. Negative 2.3% at KLM as well. I mean, it's just crazy. And When we talked about value traps yesterday with one of our guests, and we said, what, well, the airline sector trades at five times forward for the national flag carriers? They're losing money hand over fist. It's extraordinary. And what's happening as a backdrop? Are they getting more competitive? No, you've got governments increasing their stakes in these companies and making the situation even worse because they are protecting their own workforce. They're protecting shiphol They're protecting the KLM routes as well. We're going backwards in Europe. Well, well I was, the-
4: no, was going to say some of the evidence is in the numbers too. You know, yeah. If you look at yeah. the, the long haul bookings, they're saying you get most of the profitability from, in some ways you can grow your way out of a problem like this if you've got decent growth but it doesn't have the growth. And then the fuel bill keeps on climbing as well to add to its woes. So you can see it's sort of crunched with all these headwinds uh, facing it.
0: Uh, We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Coming up on the programme, President Trump's second pick for the Federal Reserve Board. Stephen Moore withdraws his name from consideration amid fierce criticism.
4: And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our podcast. You can head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, including cnbc.com, to download today's episode.
0: Just a quick heads-up before we get into a look at how the market's traded overnight. Euronext putting out some messages this morning suggesting that there might be some issues with trading in certain products. Uh, Euronext is experiencing a connectivity issue, they say, in the order entry access uh, system uh, for cash markets. Uh, To resolve the issue, pre-open, we may get a delay, the opening for warrants trading will be delayed until further notice so they've penciled in 7.15 CET and 8 o'clock CET as times we should keep an eye on but there are going to be issues with the open on some of these products this morning unless we get further notice of course. Steve.
3: Jeffrey the the, the commentary has gone oh my goodness me the data is back in the United States uh, and hence the Kool-Aid is off, the rate card is off, oh my goodness me what are the ramifications? Well that's just as inaccurate as it was at the start of you when everyone's saying we are. Uh Odds on for a rate cut, and the economy is floundering. Neither scenario is correct, but I'm afraid that the markets, the commentary on those markets, the the, the 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 column inches from the market reports say that. So when I look at the U.S. markets, I think, my goodness me, things must be bad if we've been down for a couple of sessions in a row. Well, they're not that bad. Look at the week-to-date moves on the U.S. markets. The Dow is down nine tenths of one percent. The S&P is down eight tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq is down a mighty 1.4%, of course, uh, despite the fact that one or two of the big, big names uh, have been coming off fairly aggressively. But the fact of the matter is the economy is still opaque. We don't know when the next rate move is going to be or which direction it's going to be. But ahead of the payroll today, uh, markets are, are just taking a little bit of a pause back. And I say a little bit of pause back because you heard the week-to-date moves I just mentioned there. Well, let me just tell you, we're still only 1.2% 1. off, one8 off, the record high of all time ever on the S&P. Yeah, the S&P is up 24% since Christmas Eve. All right, context before you start saying the wheels are off. They may be off, but let's just have a little look. Here we got the yields uh, on the US markets. We were 2.5% yesterday on the uh, 10-year. We're still 2.5%, 2.545. And the data was mixed yesterday. Uh, We saw mixed jobless claims. The jobless claims picked up a bit from the 1969 lows that we'd seen in the previous week. We're still only at a four-week average of 220,000, to beg pardon, 213,000, which is still stunningly low on historic levels. Quick look at the oil price for you as well. I mean, there are some real dynamics going on here as well. Um, hydrocarbon inventories have gone up. US production has gone up. The Russians never cut production, as Jeff has been graphically telling us on his travels to Moscow uh, over the last few days or so. But we're still up 30%. Now, has the sell-off in Brent been about Brent? Or has it also been about the dollar? I'll leave that as an open question. Just so you know, it's not just about commodities but we've got a man who speaks about the dollar a little bit later on that'll be david bloom who will join us from hsbc
0: uh president trump's second pick for a seat on the federal reserve's board has withdrawn his name from consideration after weeks of criticism stephen moore wasn't formally nominated but the president had been asked or rather he had been asked to take one of the vacant positions at the Fed. Moore's views on women and comments made about former President Obama saw him come under fire. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve kept rates on hold on Wednesday, citing inflation concerns. Speaking to CNBC, Citigroup CEO Michael Corbett backed the Fed's policy stance.
3: We've got the S&P at a high. We we, we just posted 3.2% growth. I don't know how you cut rates in that environment, right? And I give the Fed a lot of credit. One is putting credibility back into the balance sheet. You know, we don't see it in the near term. At some point, we will get a recession. We want a balance sheet that's credible. We want rates in a position where the Fed has the ability to act and stimulate the economy.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.